Tom, welcome to the podcast. It's lovely to have you here. I'll just briefly introduce you. You're senior lecturer and the director of the Addiction and Mental Health Group uh, in the Department of Psychology at the University of Bath here in the UK. And you're giving a talk at the conference in a couple of weeks' time. It's on the 24th of March. And the title is The Role of Cannabinoids in the Development and Treatment of Addiction and Mental Health Disorders. This is a really exciting time for mental health when we look at changes in cannabis policy and the increased availability of cannabis worldwide. And we think, can cannabis contain potentially the cause, but also the cure for mental health and addiction disorders? It's a very tricky topic to unpick, but I hope that I can give you some insights in this session. So I thought maybe we could start talking about the harms and the benefits in quite sort of general terms. We've got this sense in, in, I suppose, the public perception that cannabis is linked to various mental health problems, um, psychosis, addiction, possibly others. What does the evidence tell us about, about that, about the harms of cannabis? Well, you're absolutely right that cannabis is really at the forefront of public discourse about, about drugs and mental health. It's a very polarised debate. Often, some people will say that cannabis is an extremely harmful drug, um, very problematic. Others will say it's, it's um, not harmful at all and it can cure all ills. And the science is somewhere in, in between. We know that the most important harmful effect of cannabis, which is often underrepresented, is the development of addiction or cannabis use disorder, as is formally diagnosed using the DSM criteria. And this is a condition that affects around 22% of people who use cannabis. So given that there are 200 million people who use cannabis every year worldwide, this is a really prevalent problem. Now that, that's a major concern. And we have seen a real increase in treatment demand for the, for the treatment of cannabis use disorders. This is something that where I am in the UK, we've seen a um, very profound increase in numbers um, across Europe. Now cannabis is a major reason for first time admission to drug treatment across Europe. So it's a major uh, problem we're trying to, to target in our research. I want to get into why that's happening now more than maybe in the past and maybe the development of cannabis products and the different kind of substances that we see in them now. Before we do that, can you just give us a kind of description of what the cannabis plant contains and particularly THC and CBD and what these things are? That's a really important question because when people talk about cannabis, it's often used as a, an, all, an all-round phrase for a drug, but actually the cannabis plant is a fascinating plant which produces many different chemicals uh, which can have effects on, on our central nervous system. These are called cannabinoids. They act on our endogenous cannabinoid system, which responds to um, both natural cannabinoids in our own central nervous system, but also those contained in the cannabis plant, such as THC or delta-9-tetrahydrocannabinol, that's the main active ingredient in cannabis, which produces these intoxicating effects. Um, so THC is the part of the plant which people seek. It produces the rewarding effects, um, but also it can produce adverse effects. So it can be um, addiction causing both in humans and animals, but also it can produce anxiety and psychotic-like symptoms. Cognitive impairment very reliably will impair um, the hippocampus and learning of new information. And at the same time, alongside THC, the second most abundant cannabinoid in the plant is cannabidiol or CBD. And CBD is, is fascinating because it has a very contrasting mechanism of action to THC. If we look at how 
it acts on the brain. It's very different and almost produces the opposite effects. So we know that CBD doesn't produce intoxicating effects. You will see CBD wellness products on the high street all around the world. Um, and these products don't produce um, an effect that users can experience. It doesn't produce a high. But at the same time, they're widely used for wellness purposes. And there is some ev evidence from clinical trials that CBD could treat disorders such as anxiety and psychosis, um, as well as addiction. So do we know much about how the levels of THC and CBD have changed over time and the impact that might have had on population mental health? Yeah, we do know quite a bit about that. That's a question that I've been researching myself quite a lot in the last few years because, um, and you mentioned what are some of the reasons for this increase in treatment demand for, for cannabis use disorders? Why are so many people becoming addicted and coming forward for help? So one of the, the main hypotheses we had was that perhaps there are changes in the cannabis plant and the type of products people were using. Maybe cannabis has become more harmful. And that is indeed what we found across international studies. For example, in a meta-analysis, we found increases in THC year on year over the past 50 years. Strong evidence for an increase over time um, shown both for herbal cannabis preparations and also ex extracted cannabis resin or hash, um, a stronger increase in, in the resin or hash forms of cannabis, twofold higher. Um, but overall across um, the international landscape, very consistent evidence for this and particularly in new legal markets, such as in Washington, where there's been opportunities for commercial innovation. People have been testing new products and pushing the limits of what's available. Um, and there we've seen a rapid rise of the highly concentrated forms, often called concentrates, um, where the potencies would be in excess of 80% THC. Whereas where I am now in the UK, um, a typical potency for herbal cannabis might be around 15% THC. And, and the same in Australia, that would be a typical potency in Australia too. And I guess what you're highlighting there is that in different places in the world, uh, the law is now different and cannabis is you know, available some, in some cases, um, readily available, in some cases under some sort of license, in some cases um, still an illegal drug uh, and available, but you know, not legally. Um, I'm interested in what you think about the quality of research in those different places, because obviously here in the UK, if we're studying cannabis, it's quite hard to do that. And, you know, even if we do really good quality studies, they are still riddled with confounders. Um, can we really say anything for sure from the science we have here in the UK that cannabis causes or helps anything? Yeah, that's a really good point. The fact that cannabis is illegal here makes it hard to study. Um, for example, the, the research that I told you about where we look at changes in cannabis products, typically those studies use data from police seizures. So these will be samples that have been um, seized at the border, for example, um, or just on the street. And we know that the way that law enforcement is applied is biased. It's a very biased process. Certain people are more likely to be stopped and searched. Um, it might be that certain types of cannabis are coming to the borders and those differ from those used more widely on the street. So that is an issue um, that applies across illegal markets. In some places, such as in the Netherlands, they have a very different policy. And there there's a different approach to monitoring cannabis, which involves randomized sampling from coffee shops. So that's a very different approach in one place in Europe. As we move towards um, new legal markets elsewhere, such as in the States and Canada, we will see better quality research. 
Um, but the other thing about causality, that's a really key concern. And that applies to conditions, uh, for example, medical conditions such as chronic pain, um, where there are important questions about can cannabis help individuals with chronic pain? And this is where randomized clinical trials come in. They can demonstrate causality. And there is some evidence for this, but overall limited research, partly because of the restrictions on conducting science on cannabis, which historically has been a very difficult drug to research, being in schedule one, meaning that it has no medicinal use and therefore can't be researched. So you've spoken a bit about cannabis use disorder, but I wondered if you could kind of summarise the amount of certainty we have about the links between cannabis and psychosis and the links between cannabis and other conditions. Could you just do that for us in a nutshell? Absolutely. If we look at the most important mental health condition other than cannabis use disorder with certainty is psychosis. And this has been a really active area of research. Um, it's, been, it's been really um, passionate in terms of the debate about um, causality. There's very robust evidence for an association between cannabis use and psychosis. It increases with, with dose. There's a dose response association. Um, and based on some epidemiological studies, it looks like there's a really um, clinically relevant um, relationship. So this could account for wide variation in incidence of psychosis, for example, across Europe in a multi-site study that I did in, in collaboration with King's College London. But at the same time, um, more advanced methods using, for example, Mendelian randomization, which can apply causal inference in epidemiology. This shows that there's some evidence that cannabis can cause psychosis, but also the converse, um, that psychosis risk could cause um, cannabis use. So um, overall, a review of the studies suggests that there is some causal effect of cannabis use on psychosis, but it's not as big as estimated in the major epidemiological studies. And what about other mental health conditions? Are there links between cannabis and anxiety or depression or other conditions? For anxiety and depression, the evidence is more mixed. Overall, there's not such strong evidence, and this is based on um, low, lower quality of evidence, but also um, lower effect estimates in those studies. Um, so there's some evidence for anxiety, um, but that's not a consistent effect. And for depression, relatively weak evidence there. So what you'll often see is that people who have um, a cannabis use disorder tend to have comorbid anxiety and depression. That's a very common manifestation of cannabis use, but it's not clear that cannabis caused it. It's more of a correlate. And is cannabis still a popular drug in young people these days? I'm, I'm interested in people who come to the conference who may be coming from a kind of clinical psychology background and are thinking, how should I talk to young people about cannabis use and the potential harms and benefits? Is it as much a kind of in, in fashion drug, if you like? I think it absolutely is. We've seen the decline in prevalence of, for example, tobacco smoking with increased understanding of, of the severe health consequences. At the same time, cannabis is undergoing a rapid shift as we've seen cannabis being legalized um, both for medicinal and recreational use around the world in a number of US states in Canada, Uruguay, and now moving across Europe um, and around the world. People have lower risk perceptions and there's a lot of interest in cannabis, um, both for its recreational effects and also its potential benefits uh, medically. And, and that does make it an, att an attractive drug for young people. So let's move on to benefits, potential health benefits. I guess we've known for many, many years that cannabis has 
potential treatment effects with physical health, um, multiple sclerosis, I guess, is a key example. Um, but recently, we started to get much more interested in the potential addiction or mental illness treatment properties of cannabis. Is it is it the CBD side that we're focusing on here? Give, give us a bit of a sense of what the preparations might be that can help people. That's a good question. Um, the answer is it depends on the condition. If we look across all of the medicinal indications, what we see is that for different conditions, there have been varying combinations of THC and CBD tested. Um, so, for example, spasticity in multiple sclerosis, that's typically been tested with a combination of THC and CBD at approximately a one-to-one -one ratio. So this is um, nabiximols. It's a medicine that's approved for this condition. There is some interest in whether different combinations of THC and CBD might be better, but that's a primary product tested. Um, and then if we look, for example, at childhood epilepsy, um, severe forms of childhood epilepsy, that's the area where CBD alone has the strongest evidence base. And there are now lots of randomized clinical trials that have shown this. This is another contentious area where some families are coming forward to say, I think that THC is better on its own or when combined with, with CBD. We don't have the clinical trial evidence to support that. Um, so it's unclear, but that's where we'll hear from these, these stories of families who are desperate for a treatment they're not getting on the healthcare services where they live. And it's causing some people to then break the law in order to help their, their children. So across different medical indications, it does, it does differ. And chronic pain is one that's, um, again, most widely studied with THC and CBD. That's really interesting. And so what about treating mental illness or addiction problems with cannabis? How far has the science kind of progressed on that front? This is an area that has lagged behind relative to other health conditions, but it's really promising. If we look at the involvement of the endocannabinoid system in mental health, we know it's, it's absolutely crucial. And if we look at the effects of THC um, when people use cannabis recreationally, and we can see um, the addiction and, and psychosis I mentioned, these are effects which they've been widely documented. And so it makes sense that this is a really good target as a treatment for mental health disorders. Overall, we don't have lots of randomized trials, but for mental health conditions, CBD alone appears to be the most promising target. So for example, with psychosis, there have been two positive clinical trials showing a benefit of, of cannabidiol or CBD treatment on psychotic symptoms. And there's a large multi-site study conducted in Europe now. Um, it's underway and that's going to really test this in a, in a huge sample. So it's really promising as an area of research. And also for addiction, my own work testing CBD as a treatment for cannabis use disorder, providing promising results from the first trial of its kind. Um, a first study, so not necessarily replicable, but an important first step to move forwards. <laughs> Is it an area where actually what's happening in the real world is always going to precede the science? You know, it takes many, many years and many hundreds of thousands of pounds to do these randomized trials. But actually, there are millions of people out there in the real world who are doing this, who are buying CBD oil off the Internet and using it to treat their anxiety. I, I wonder what your reflections are being a scientist and trying to answer these questions in a reliable way about how science needs to change in order to actually catch up. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's an interesting case where there are, there are lots of people who have that real world experience. And, and I think that can be benefits, uh, but that can be beneficial for science. For example, citizen science, um, getting people involved in 
really making it much stronger than it is through large sample sizes um, and real-world data that has greater meaningfulness than, for example, clinical trials that might not generalise to the general public. And there is a move, um, for example, in the UK with a registry called 2021, which is run by David Nutt and colleagues. Um, and David Nutt has seen some of the limitations in the evidence, but also called for other evidence other than randomised control trials in order to make medicinal cannabis more accessible and quickly. So as part of this study, um, people who have conditions, including mental health conditions, can apply to receive cannabis-based formulations and then to have those prescriptions to look at real-world outcomes and then potentially generate evidence as to if this can be effective and should it be recommended more widely. I'm interested in what you would say to a parent or a teacher or a mental health professional or a young person because it's so complex, isn't it? This is such a complex drug and it has such a complex effect. And, you know, if you're a 17-year-old and struggling with all sorts of issues and potentially just about to become psychotic for the first time, it's clearly not a good idea. Um, but then the same drug can be extremely helpful for other people. How do you kind of present that in such a way that people can make informed decisions? Well, I think the most important thing is to maintain good communication and engagement. So, for example, with an adolescent, not to shut off that conversation, it might be the case that if you want that individual not to be using cannabis or other drugs, um, you might think that um, the kind of approach that you shouldn't use this um, completely and then potentially that's the end of the conversation. Don't come back to me um, if you said that you have because that's not acceptable. I would say continue to engage, recognise that regardless of the context, cannabis can have potential benefits um, as well as harms. But it's important to acknowledge those because, for example, if we were conducting an intervention for, for cannabis problems such as motivational interviewing, we would recognise that the individual has a perceived benefits as well as harms. And it's all about allowing them to, to um, balance those out, resolve any ambivalence, and then to motivate change themselves. I think it's really important to understand what people say, listen to them, don't dismiss what they say is incorrect. And as you said in your previous point, learning about how science can change, involve them in the science, listen to what they have to say. It might be something really insightful. Often um, science can, can change through insights from individual people. Mm -hmm.